Well, I have had a lingering summer cold for a long, long time, and uh, I think I have some residual stuff in my voice still, so I'm a little uh, <clears throat> rough around the edges, I guess. So be patient with me. <clears throat> All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Esther chapter 8. <clears throat> um. Sorry, I uh, woke up this morning, I was like, I feel all, all better, and now I'm like, oh, come on. But uh, in our weakness, his strength is made perfect, so I'm grateful for that. We're doing a series going through the book of Esther, and we're looking at the way in which God is active, sometimes even behind the scenes, or active in a way where sometimes we don't even recognize <clears throat> his handiwork, and um, we've seen it over and over throughout the course of our weeks together in the book of Esther. But today, as we jump into Esther chapter 8, we're kind of coming to the conclusion of the book, and we're recognizing that God is now reversing the circumstances. And this is important for us as Christians today, and so I'm going to point some stuff out along the way. But let's go ahead and start with verses 1 and 2, which are, the reversal of circumstances for Mordecai. So Mordecai has a personal reversal in verses 1 and 2. So look with me at verse 1. It says, That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. That same day. That ties us together with all these things that have been happening, and it has been a busy day. The day started with a gallows that was constructed overnight in order to execute Mordecai. There was a man named Haman who was a royal official, and he did not like that Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him, so he constructed a gallows to have Mordecai executed, and he goes to the palace to the king that day thinking, oh, I'm going to get permission to have him executed in the morning, and it uh, doesn't go his way. In fact, the king overnight has stayed up and has read the record of his reign, and he found out that there was somebody who saved his life, and he thought to himself, what have we done for this guy? And it just so happens to be Mordecai, and so that morning, Haman shows up to execute Mordecai. That same morning, the king wakes up going, what can we do to reward Mordecai? And so there's already a reversal that's happening there. So uh, there's a public display of affection for Mordecai, and Haman is devastated, and he uh, goes home briefly and then gets escorted back to a banquet, which the king uh, is, is hosting, but the queen has prepared, and the queen reveals in that moment that there is a plot against her and her people, and it is a plot to destroy the Jews. And the king gets so angry, he says, who, who would dare to do such a thing? And the queen says, well, he's right here at this table. It's Haman. And so he's arrested and then executed for uh, his evil plot. Now, that same day ties us together with those events. Everything is just happening rapid fire and what happens is King Xerxes gifts the estate of Haman to Queen Esther, and she in turn hands it over to Mordecai. Verse 1 goes on to say, And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. So now their identity is out in the open, their, their connection to each other and to the Jews is made plain, and that's been secret to this point, but they are revealing their um, their camaraderie with their people, and the king then, verse 2, took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. 
He takes his ring, his royal official ring with the royal insignia on it, and he gives it to Mordecai, and he gives him power and authority and exalts him then in the kingdom of Persia. Now, here's the point then. What we're seeing is this personal reversal for Mordecai. In the morning, when he wakes up that day, when we're reading the story, here's what we're feeling. Death is hanging over his head. There is a, there's a thing that has been constructed on which a person named Haman intends to kill him on that day. In the morning, that's how the day starts. He, Mordecai might not know that, but you, you feel that as you're working your way through the story. You feel like this is starting off very poorly. But then by the end of the day, total reversal. It's not him who's being executed, it's somebody else. And he goes from being despised, he goes from being resented, he goes from being uh, an object of hostility to now he's exalted, now he's celebrated, now he's given power and authority within the kingdom itself. And what we find then is, is we see this, this personal reversal that Mordecai is experiencing. He goes from just being in a, a worker within the, the royal palace to being somebody who now has the estate of his enemy. So this, it's an incredible reversal. Now, why this should be important to us is that God has a habit of doing this. God has a habit of taking what feels broken and disappointing and devastating, and from first glance, we look at it and we go, I can't imagine how this would work out well. God has a habit of taking those types of scenarios and turning them on their head. He does this over and over and over again, and he's doing it here in our story again. He does this repeatedly. This is what God does. He takes broken things and disappointing things and devastating things and things that we might wrongly assess on the first pass and go, there is nothing redeemable here. This is just awful. But then God turns it around. And I could show it to you from a lot of different places. There are historical narratives where people like Joseph experience this, or people like Hannah, or people like Young David, there, there are all kinds of examples in the scriptures where the circumstances look grim, but then God's favor shows up in a profound way, and the circumstances are then reversed. That principle, if you believe it, it changes your life. It changes your life. It changes how you handle the hard things that you go through. Now, I'm trying to be careful here because it is not a mechanical thing that if you follow God, then there's this automatic blessing that always comes your way. Uh, it doesn't always show up, especially on the timeline that we would prefer, which is immediate. We would like for God's good things to show up today, but often they are delayed. But even still, if you believe this point, you, you can be a different kind of person who can handle the hard things in life with a, a sort of confidence about you. Let me show you one example in the New Testament. In, in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, I believe, there's a group of people, and the writer to the Hebrews says, hey, remember when you went and visited some of your fellow believers in prison? And while you were doing that prison visitation, your house was ransacked? Do you remember how you emotionally engaged with that moment? The, the writer to the Hebrews says, you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you had a better and a lasting possession. In other words, you knew that God would see that and reward you. You knew that you would get compensated for your loss. And you, it wasn't an immediate thing. It wasn't like God said, well, here's your house back or here's all your gear back. No, it was this reality that they believed that God 
was going to take care of them in the age to come. So it means that you can go through the hardest of things in this present life, believing that God sees everything and is able to turn things around, and that actually changes how you handle life. Well, the Lord himself taught this principle in Mark chapter 10. He puts it like this. So the, the disciples were saying, hey, we've, we've lost an awful lot to be your followers. We've made some tremendous sacrifices. We, we, we've set it all out on, on the line to be one of your disciples. And he replies like this in Mark chapter 10. He says, truly, I tell you, no one who has left house home, brothers, sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. And he says them all over again, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. He says, look, if you've made sacrifices for me and for the gospel, you can expect that you will be rewarded for it because that's a principle that God will stand behind. If you entrust yourself to God, he will see you and he will care for you. And one day, ultimately, he will reward you for your faithfulness. Now, again, I think a lot of that comes in the age to come, but it changes the immediate circumstances now. We can be, we can be going through life and instead of feeling like, I have to defend my reputation. I have to make things right. I have to fix what's broken in my life. This is disappointing. Instead, we can say God sees and he cares and he can do something about it. And one day he's going to bring about a reversal for me that will be spectacular. He will reward me for my faithfulness. So Mordecai's personal reversal is important for each and every one of us that we would, we would recognize God is at work and, and he will See us in our present estate, and he will look after us appropriately. Well, then we find the reversal of the decree in verses 3 to 14. There's a law that has been written to, de to uh, destroy the people of God, the Jews. And in chapter 8, verses 3 to 14, we see the undoing of that. <clears throat> so first off, we get the, the queen presenting her request. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. So she goes before the king, and she says, King, I, I, I need something here. And she's emotionally engaged in this moment. She's weeping before him. She's falling before him. She's pleading her case. She's going to make this request that he would do something about this, but we need to see that she is moved by the circumstances. Verses 5 and 6. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he's pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? Again, we've been noting week by week this uh, relational wisdom that she has. She's approaching the king and she's speaking to him with respect and honor. She's careful. She's not pinning blame on him, though he is culpable here. She's careful of how she's even presenting the material. And we, we find that to be an important feature of how we ought to talk as well. But here she's using the colorful 
court language, if, it, if I found favor with you, if it's pleasing to you, all these different things. And then she, she throws in the wife card. If you love me, you'll do this, right? If, you, if I found favor with you, if, if, I'm, if I'm pleasing, if, I, if you love me, you'll do this. Last night we were hanging out with our neighbors and uh, my na- we, we've been borrowing a little portable carpet cleaner to clean up after our dog from one of our neighbors. And my neighbor, Kristen, he was like, um, Ash said, you must not love her. I said, what? This is news to me. We're talking about the carpet cleaner. She says, yeah, she put, uh, she put a, a carpet cleaner in the Amazon cart and expected for you to get it as an expression or token of your love for her. And I said, well, I did not know that. So it <laughs> feels to me like we're going to be buying a carpet cleaner. But that's what she's doing here. She's going before the king and she's saying, look, I, there's something that is so troubling right now, so moving right now, and, and, and I need you to, to do something about it. And the king, he, he replies, and he kind of says, well, I've kind of done some stuff already. But then he realizes it, it is insufficient. Let's look at it, verses 7 and 8. King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, because Ammon attacked the Jews, I've given his estate to Esther, and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews as seems best to you and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. He's saying, okay, I hear you and here's what we can do. Though I've already dealt with the perpetrator and I've given his estate over to you, here's what I'll do. I'll give you the authority to write a decree in my name, and you write whatever seems best to you. Because, as he indicates here, the Persian law, you can't undo what's already been done. You can't go back and say, look, we're taking this one off the books. You can't revoke the law. It's in force. But he says, here's what we can do. We can write a counter law. You can draft a counter law that would overwhelm this previous one. And so that's what they do. Now, the thing that I want us to think through is this when this is good leadership on the part of the queen. I think it's very, very important that we would see the way in which she is emotionally attached to the people that she's leading and serving. It's not enough for her and Mordecai to live safely in the palace if the people, if her people are not looked after, it's not enough. This is good leadership. When we think through leadership within the church or civil leadership, we should be thinking through Good leadership ought to care for the people it's intended to bless. It ought to care, not just about its own personal advantage, but those to which it is designed to serve. And that's what the queen is doing here. Well, the announcement then is both drafted and delivered in verses 9 to 14. And what we find here is this symmetry between what happened in chapter 3 and how God is now reversing that, meaning all of the things that happen in these verses I'm about to show you, they've, they've already happened for very different purposes. When Haman drafted the law, he was doing it out of evil intentions to do harm to the Jews. Now we're going to find an exact correspondence between each of those things and what's about to play out here in our text today. So the secretaries are recommissioned. There's a communication network within the kingdom of Persia where they can translate uh, the laws and the things that are being communicated into all the different languages. There's 127 provinces. All these different people with all these different 
mother tongues, and, and there's an ability to translate a message to all those people and have it disseminated appropriately. So verse 9 says, At once the royal secretaries were summoned. On the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan, they wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors, and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script in their own language. This is Google Translate a long time ago. This is, we've got a way to communicate a message and everyone is going to be able to understand what it means. And so they recommissioned the secretaries to translate it and then to send it out. So earlier, Haman wrote a, a law, destroy the Jews. He sends it out in every language in all the different scripts, to all the different peoples. Here we have the reworking of a decree, the recommissionment of the secretaries. Then we have the king's signet ring being reutilized. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, he sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and he sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. So he takes that ring, it's like the executive signature, and he says, I'm gonna, it, it was used previously to draft a document to destroy the people of God. Now it's being reutilized for their safety, for their provision. So he wrote with the authority of the king, and he sealed it, and he sent them out. The law itself is revisited. It's reversed in the sense that this new one is going to overwhelm the details of the previous one. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. In other words, every detail of the previous law now has a corresponding you know, response to it, that they now can arm themselves and prepare for battle. They now can be prepared to do away with any known enemy. And you might read that and go, wow, that seems pretty severe that even women and children are, are in the purview of this law. But the truth is, it's, just, it's corresponding to the previous one. It's just saying, look, everything that was intended to harm you, you now have the ability to undo. Everything that was intended and designed to be your, your destruction, you now have the ability to defend yourself against it. So the law is revisited, then the delivery system is reused. The couriers riding the royal horses went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. So, that, so all these different features that were previously used for evil are now being reworked for good. So here's the point. God is showing us how comprehensive his plan really is. He's showing us his ability to take all the little nuances of things that were leveraged for evil and to turn them around. That's what's going on here. In fact, one of our hymns, our great hymns, has a line, and it, and it gets us into that realm of what God is ultimately up to. It says, look, as far as the curse is found. And it's talking about the, the, the work of God and its ability to undo the effects of sin and brokenness in our world. And when we look at this story and we see how God is reversing 
the circumstances for the Jews, that's what we're considering, that God is able to undo evil. He's able to do something so spectacular that it feels as though the evil that we've experienced is actually being overwhelmed. In The Lord of the Rings, there's a scene where Sam sees Gandalf again, and he thought that Gandalf was dead because Gandalf fell into a great chasm in a, in a great battle, and he sees him, and he's just surprised. Like, I th- he's saying, I thought you were dead, but I thought I was dead too. He's, he's kind of expressing, like, this is insane, and he, he says... He asks the question, he says, is everything sad coming untrue? And he kind of reflects and he goes, what's, what's happening in our world? It feels as though there's a dark shadow, but there's this sense in, in that dialogue where he's going, there's something that's happening here that feels like it's going to overwhelm all the bad things that we're going through. And when Gandalf replies to that question and that sense, he laughs. Gandalf, I thought you were dead. I thought I was dead. And he just starts laughing. And Tolkien describes it like this. It says, it sounded like music. It sounded like water in a parched land. You see, what we're considering this morning is the reality that God is able to undo the evil and the brokenness in our world. And if you, if you, if you really believe that, then it, it really does feel like this is spectacular. Like I thought that it was going to just be bad, but now I'm looking at it through a new lens and I'm beginning to realize all of the brokenness in our world, God is doing something about it. One day, it's actually going to be undone. In fact, the end of the Bible tells us that. It tells us that there will be no more death or sin or sickness or pain, for the old order of things is going away. And the Lord says, see, I'm making all things new. When we look at the condition of the Jews here in Esther chapter 8, and we see that God is reversing the circumstances, it's just a preview of coming attractions. One day, God is going to do that on a wide scale for all of us. Well, the result of it then is joy. The result of it, and we find it in verses 15 to 17, we see the effects of this in real time. In verse 15, when Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa, held a joyous celebration. This is wild because in the, in the earlier episode, in chapter 3, what happened? Mordecai was wearing sackcloth and ashes. He's mourning, and the city itself, Susa, was bewildered because there was a law that said all the Jews were going to be destroyed, and they were mourning. And we get to this point, and what do we find? We find Mordecai clothed in royal garments and the city partying. That's what the work of God can do. God can overrule the brokenness in the world in such a way that it results in a joyous celebration. They're celebrating in every place. Look at verses 16 and following. It says, for the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. When you understand what God is doing, it should result in your incredible joy. There should be a celebration about the fact that God is at work for our good. And when we understand that, it results in our joy. Furthermore, it results in the mission advancing. Look at the end of verse 17. Many people of other nationalities became Jews 
because of the fear of the Jews that had seized them. When they saw the fortunes of God falling on the Jewish individuals, and they saw how God was at work behind the scenes protecting and providing for his people, they, they became followers of that God. They converted to that Jewish faith, that belief in Yahweh, that belief in God who can do something. So when we believe this and when we live this out and when we celebrate the work of God, it actually results in the advancement of the mission. When people see us celebrating that we can go through really, really hard stuff, but we do it with a confidence in God and they say, what's different about you? Why why do you do that? Why do you look at circumstances differently than the rest of us? And you say, because I serve a God who one day is going to set all things right. And they say, well, I like that. I like the idea of that, big time. Tell me more. The the, the mission advances when we entrust ourselves to God. Well, part of this story um, gets us into the realm of thinking through why why this should be important for us. Not just because we can handle life differently, but also because it gives us a sense of the good news of the gospel. If we look at the reality of the world in which we live, and we look at our own hearts, we recognize that evil is pervasive. It's obviously out there, but it's also in here. And what we we realize is if if evil were punished as it deserves, it would be all bad news. But there is a God who loves us, and there is a God who sees us. And if there's... There's a reality about sin and wickedness and evil that says there there is a just punishment for it. The wages of sin is death. If we got what what we deserved, it would be wrath. But God wrote a counter edict. He wrote a counter law that says, look, you do not have to suffer punishment and devastation. You do not have to be destroyed. I will place my son on the cross and he will die in your place, the death that you deserve. Karen Jobes, in her commentary, puts it like this. She says, because we're all sinners and evildoers, we all have God's irrevocable decree of death against us. And God could have justly destroyed the earth and everyone on it, for none of us is good by God's standard. Instead, he chose to issue a counter decree, to redeem a people out of sin and evil and into righteousness, removing from them the realm of his destruction and moving them into the realm of his deliverance. That's the good news of the gospel. If we got what we deserved, it would be punishment. It would be death. It would be destruction. And and we ought to mourn and we ought to put on sackcloth and ashes as we consider that. But at the same time, when we think about a God who wrote a counter decree and says, look, you don't have to suffer that fate. You can believe in my son. You can entrust yourself to him and you can experience saving faith and life with him forever. We should celebrate that truth. That's why we exist as a church because we are a people who believe that is true. We believe that Jesus came and died in our place and that he rose from the grave and is at the right hand of the Father right now. In fact, Mordecai serves kind of as an as a illustration of, of Christ. When the Jews look at Mordecai, they get a sense of how they're doing. He's their representative. When they see him and he's mourning because there's a law hanging over their heads of their certain death, they too mourn. But in verse 15, how do we see him there? In verse 15, we see Mordecai clothed in royal garments, exalted, and the people celebrate. When we think about our Lord Jesus Christ, we can look at him through the humiliation of the cross, and we can mourn over that, but then we see him seated at the right hand of the 
Father in heaven. And what should we do? Celebrate. He is our advocate. He is our king. He is our Lord. And he has brought about salvation for us. Let's pray. Lord, we pray right now that you would help us to believe in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen for us. The threat of death no longer hangs over our heads because we can believe in him and have eternal life. Lord, I pray that that would change us, that we would become a gospel-confident people so we could look at the circumstances of life very differently, knowing that one day you are going to make all things right that you are going to undo the evil and the wickedness and the brokenness in our world. And in the meantime, Lord, would you find us faithful to you, living with confidence and hope and the promise that one day will come true. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.